You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that a lack of sleep can induce anxiety. In healthy adults, well, at least they said they were healthy, overnight sleep deprivation triggered anxiety the next morning, along with altered brain activity patterns. And people with anxiety disorders oftentimes have trouble sleeping, and these new results show the reverse effects, that poor sleep, when you have it, can induce anxiety. This came out of UC Berkeley, and they looked at 18 people following either a night of sleep or a night of staying awake. They did anxiety tests the next morning. Sleep deprivation led to 30% more anxiety than people who slept, and the anxiety scores reached levels of people who have anxiety disorders, and sleep-deprived people's brain activity changed too. So when they looked at emotional videos, brain areas involved in emotions were more active, the prefrontal cortex which is the part of you that helps you think and pay attention and sort of be a, a thinking human. It's also the part of you that slows down your anxiety. That part was less active, and this is according to functional MRI scans. So poor sleep isn't just a symptom of anxiety, but maybe it's a cause. And that is a definite call to hack your own sleep, which is particularly important. Something that wasn't in the study that's really interesting too is that your gut bacteria also have their own separate circadian rhythm. So when you stay up all night or you're jet lagged, your gut bacteria are also jet lagged. And when they get pissed off, guess what they do? They make something called LPS or lipopolysaccharide, a very potent toxin that crosses the gut barrier. And especially if you don't have an intact stomach lining, uh, causes inflammation throughout the body, including in the brain. So LPS is bad news. And this is one of those reasons that if you're going to stay up all night, take some charcoal already because charcoal binds LPS and you'll feel better the next morning and you'll have less anxiety. Who would have thought? What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. You may have noticed in my continuous evolution of becoming great at foreshadowing that we might talk about sleep and circadian biology in today's episode. 
And there's a couple reasons for that. One is I'm a huge fan of understanding and learning and knowing what's going on there because it's one of the things that's led me to perform better. And it's one of the core things that showed up in the Game Changers book in, in the study of the, the laws of high performers, these 46 laws that came out from almost 500 episodes of Bulletproof Radio, just studying with a statistician, what are the common patterns that people talk about as being most important for them to reach the level of attainment in their life or in their career to have done something noteworthy that, that is worth getting on the show? Well, sleep was up there. In fact, it's in Law 19. And that is why uh, today... I'm really happy to have a friend and former uh, guest of Bulletproof Radio back on the show. I'm talking about none other than Sachin Panda, PhD, who's a leading expert in circadian rhythm and a professor at the Salk Institute in San Diego. He has written uh, an app called My Circadian Clock that helps you synchronize your uh, circadian biology, and his lab has been transformative because he's shown the profound impact of ambient light and daily eating fasting on preventing huge numbers of diseases like diabetes, depression, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, cancer, and stuff like that. He's also come up with this concept of time-restricted eating, and it's very related to intermittent fasting, but he says that people who eat everything within an 8 to 12-hour period can boost their circadian rhythm, and maybe even reduce chronic diseases. So in February of 2018, uh, Dr. Panda was on Bulletproof Radio in two different episodes. And if you didn't pick up his book uh, about this when you heard him on those last two episodes, number 466 and 467, you need to pick up The Circadian Code, which is a, a really good overview of this. Circadian biology is tied into my work since I first read a book in 2001, uh, from T.S. Wiley called Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival. And uh, her work set off my path of circadian biology. And when I got to meet uh, Dr. Panda at the Salk Institute a couple of years ago and go into his lab and look at rat melanopsin cells and talk to his PhD researchers, I'm like, this guy is changing the world, which is why he's on for his third time. Dr. Panda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. That was a really nice uh, introduction. And <laughs> I'm really flattered that uh, you are such a big fan of circadian rhythm, and everybody should be, <laughs> because as you said, that's one of the foundations of better health. Um, right before uh, recording uh, this episode, I was at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and I gave a keynote talk, and I mentioned you and your work uh, on stage in front of uh, thousands of, of anti-aging doctors. And then later, I was on a panel with Peter Adia, who's also been on on the show, and uh, Peter and I on, on our panel both mentioned your work separately. So you've made great inroads with this huge audience of people out in the trenches working with patients on making them younger because circadian biology is one of those things we just didn't know anything about, I would say, 20 years ago, at least anything relevant, and it's completely changed things. Why are we finding all these changes just in the period of time of your work? Like what happens to make us become more aware and, and to, to crack the code, given that's the title of your book? Yeah, well, circadian biology is a very interesting aspect of biology. If you think about every other um, field of biomedical research, there is a disease and then people work on the disease. Circadian rhythm came, uh, started as a very simple curiosity. Why we go to sleep? why we sleep for seven hours or eight hours. 
and is there a clock inside and what has happened is in the last 20 years the key discoveries uh, can be summarized into three major things one is people discovered that just like our brain has a clock almost every organ has its own clock and that completely transformed how we think about circadian clocks second one was uh, we also figured out that blue light is a strong um, agent in sunlight that uh, resets our clock or uh, having exposure to blue light at night can disrupt the clock and then the third major discovery was uh, how foot timing affects our clock so these three um, really transformed how we think about health because if you think about now what circadian rhythm field is doing this is the only field that's actually studying what is health because all other fields of biomedical research study what is disease so we can go over these three major um, uh, discoveries or breakthroughs in circadian rhythm field the first one is every organ has its clock and that's a profound statement because if we think about clock we always think about sleep so that means just like our brain has a clock that tells our brain to sleep for seven to eight hours at night it also tells our brain that the peak time to do complex math have complex business negotiation or solve problem is somewhere say between 8 a.m and 2 p.m um, so that means if other organs have clogged they should have a optimum time to do their job and they also need downtime to rest reset and rejuvenate so slowly uh, over the last 20 years people working in this field are finding out that yes that's true um, just like our brain has a clock liver has a clock and it can digest food and can nurture our body for only seven to eight hours or maximum say 12 hours and then it needs downtime so similarly our gut has a clock even the microbiome that lives inside the gut they have a circadian clock or a daily clock muscles have a clock so now if we think of every single if we think of our health our health is a product of um, our organs and hormones and when our organs hormones and brain chemicals rise and fall at the right time then our body clock synchronize and we are at top performance so that's a very profound concept that's evolving in circadian rhythm field okay you mentioned the liver uh, quite a lot in there and uh, it, it's funny people oftentimes don't associate circadian things and sleep with what the liver is doing tell me more about why you brought that up well liver is the if you think about uh, liver is the one of the largest solid organ that is very important for metabolism so it uh, produces fuel for almost every part of our body including brain it also breaks down a lot of uh, uh, xenobiotics or unwanted molecules that we ingest um, this is also a place where we produce many of the key molecules for fighting infection. Um, so liver plays a huge role in our health. And in fact, uh, interestingly, most of the circadian studies uh, these days have moved away from looking at the brain and they are more and more looking at the liver uh, since liver plays such a big role. So for example, if we think about um, fasting, then liver is the major place where 
we should our liver produces some ketone bodies towards the end of our 14, 16, or 18 hours of fasting. And that ketone body is transported to our heart and brain for better function. So in that way, liver plays a huge role in fueling our brain yeah. and keeping us smart. It really, uh, it really matters so much. Uh, one of the studies that uh, I was really pleased to see uh, that came out of UC San Diego uh, was uh, Dr. Kinane's research that showed the amount of caffeine in two small cups of coffee doubled ketone production. So like, let's see, I, I just uh, slept all night, which is a fasting window unless you sleep eat. <laughs> and, uh, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you want to get some more of those ketones that will happen if you skip breakfast. But if you have black coffee, you're going to have more ketones than if you didn't, according to that study. And of course, if you're doing bulletproof coffee where you have brain octane in there, you can be sure you're getting some extra ketones in the morning. And for me, that's, it's just been a, a profound awakening of my brain, given that I used to weigh 300 pounds and had autoimmunity things and high, uh, high blood sugar and prediabetes and all the other crap that I had to deal with when I was younger. So it's, uh, it, it's no wonder that the liver matters. But if you look at traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, <laughs> um, all these uh, Eastern systems of healing, a lot of them are heavily focused on liver and kidneys. Uh, and of course, they care about the brain, but it seems like we're now using circadian biology to rediscover things that maybe we knew a thousand years ago. Do you agree with that? Well, the thing is, when it comes to health and wellness, anything that we can think of has already been tried in human history because you know humans have been trying uh, by trial and error and many other methods to figure out what is the best way to live a healthy long life. Um, so that's what we always so that's what we always hear that uh, yes, whatever you discovered, a grandmother used to say. <laughs> well, it, that was definitely one of the laws in the book. Eat, eat like your grandmother is one of the laws in the book. Um, which is also tied to mitochondria and you know the uh, the assumption. In fact, I'd love to test this this one on you. So, when I interviewed all the people in Game Changers, and I said that question on bulletproof radio, you know, top three recommendations for people who want to perform better at everything. I I ended up having some some sort of weird thoughts on that and saying, all right, number one data point that came out was food. But certainly not everyone agrees on what to eat, but everyone agrees if I eat the wrong stuff, I can't show up. I'm not going to be a game changer if I eat garbage. So I think there is an algorithm for eating and the Bulletproof Diets worked very well. And it's an algorithmic approach that says, look, you know, eat less of the stuff that makes you weak so you're less inflamed. You know, eat more of the stuff that gives you energy and more nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. But cyclical ketosis, you kind of put that on a map. Uh, but when you look at mitochondria, they come from the mother's side, right? So it's what your mom's, 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 mom's ate. Your mitochondria are going to be adapted for, quote, your people. So if you were to flip a coin and say, will I handle legumes? Uh, will I handle nightshades? Will I handle dairy? Will I handle those things? It is more likely that since your mitochondria are the things that turn air and food into electrons at the end of the day, it's more likely that if you look at what your ancestors ate on that side, you'll get some hints as to where you might want to start when you're figuring out what's going to work for you. <laughs> Do you buy that line of reasoning? Um, it's okay to say no, but, but it, it, it seems to work. Well, the thing is, uh, we always think of, okay, so there is this epigenetics that uh, that is uh, inherited from our 
ancestors. But at the same time, if our ancestors went through famine or fasting or maybe too much food or certain type of food, and that's imprinted in their genome or mitochondria genome, uh, then that is also a good sign that if we change our behavior, we'll also imprint our mitochondria or our genome in a very different way. And we can pass on that mitochondria or that epigenetic code to our, our <laughs> children. So in that way, it's a, it's um, it's an interesting hypothesis. People always say that whatever your parents did, um, that is imprinted on you. And the flip side of that coin is, if you pick up some good habit, you'll also pass on those good habits to your children. And if you pick up some bad habits, that's also going to pass pass on to your children. I've become more and more convinced uh, from reading literature and and just just from writing Headstrong in my last big book. If you look at what the the first line environmental sensors for epigenetic sensing are, it, it appears to be the mitochondria. And that they're the ones who would make a, a, a single cell decision about allocation of resources, more so than other subcellular structures. Uh, and sort of saying, all right, if, if they're one of the things that controls epigenetic uh, switching, and, and I found a couple of studies that indicate that that's probably how it works, um, that, that if you look then at what are they, what are they most wired for? Uh, you know, if, if your, your mother, let's say, was born at the equator, uh, eating a relatively high starch diet, and then you, in one generation, <laughs> move to the North Pole and try to go to an Eskimo diet. You're probably not going to like what happens uh, biologically, right? And but if over the course of uh, you know walking across a land bridge over thousands of years to allow epigenetic changes to percolate through your genome, and you crossbred with some other people along the way, all right, it's fine. You, you're probably going to be able to handle the North Pole a little bit better. Um, and and so it's that idea that says. Yes, there'll be epigenetic changes, and yes, the father's DNA, which goes to the nuclear genome, probably makes a difference here. However, if you were to close your eyes, flip a coin, and say, "Okay, what am I most likely to have that's compatible with my biology?" Just look at look at your mom's history and start there, and then see what else works. That that was the general thinking behind it. Well, the thing is, um, mitochondria genome encodes only thirteen or fourteen protein in the mitochondria, mm-hmm. but more than twelve hundred genes that instruct the mitochondria to function or um, build up the mitochondria, they come from the nuclear genome. And that's where both yes. fathers and mothers' genes uh, play a big role. That's correct. Um, and also if there is epigenetic imprinting, that will happen, more likely to happen among this few of these 1,200 genes. So that's how, in yeah, the nuclear, in the nuclear genome. The nuclear DNA. So, so the, the, what got me thinking about these lines was uh, a fascinating study. And, and if you haven't seen it, stop me. And so we won't go too deep on it. But they were looking at uh, starlings, I believe, uh, some sort of some sort of yeah. small bird. Uh, it might have been a different one. And the population split a couple thousand years ago. Half of them live outside Cabo and half of them live outside Portland. And over that time, their mitochondrial DNA mutates to help them be more optimized for the Pacific Northwest versus you know, the, the sunshine. Well, researchers took these two populations and said, I wonder if they can crossbreed. So they crossbred them, and they found that the offspring had uh, relatively high degrees of chronic mm-hmm. illness. And they said, well, this is a mismatch between the nuclear DNA and the mitochondrial DNA. And that the, the wiring diagram didn't match the physical infrastructure. Those those twelve hundred genes didn't line mm-hmm. up very well 
with the mitochondrial DNA. But when they took the kids and then they crossbred the, the chronically ill offspring with the other side, their offspring were healthy again. So they could kind of turn this on or off by aligning <laughs> the nuclear uh, DNA and all. Have you come across that study at all in your, in your research? No, I haven't. Uh, I should look up that, <laughs> that study it, to see. It, it's yeah. kind of, it, it's very interesting because all of us yeah. uh, as humans, uh, at least 99% of us or something, have huge amounts of crossbreeding, yeah. uh, you know, where you, you, you look back and my 23andMe says, oh, Dave, you in the 1700s, you have a, you know, full-blooded Native American ancestor. I'm like, we had a family legend that that might've been the case, <laughs> but we had no data. So, okay, apparently that was true. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, but it, it means that, you know, there's no such thing as kind of a, uh, a perfectly matched mitochondrial, uh, uh, DNA to nuclear DNA. Yeah. But I think that may be affecting, uh, chronic illness and it seems like it's probably stuff that's hackable. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a fascinating world, yeah. but you haven't gone down that path in your research. Yeah. Okay. Now, what we know is the mitochondria, they repair themselves and divide and fuse together. So this happens on a daily basis and there is a circadian rhythm to that. Um, so the mitochondria will divide and then we'll get rid of the bad portion of the mitochondria and then the good mitochondria will fuse together uh, to make good mitochondria. And having a strong circadian rhythm helps nurture this cycle of rejuvenation of mitochondria on a daily basis. Because uh, if we accumulate those mutations in mitochondria DNA, then even though we have 1,200 genes in the nucleus uh, that constitute the mitochondria, those this tiny part of mitochondria DNA, if that is mutated, then uh, that can cause a lot of problems. So it's a nice mechanism to divide, get rid of the bad mitochondria, and then uh, fuse again. And that's strongly um, driven by circadian rhythms. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about circadian rhythms. Sleep came up very high yeah. on the things that high performers do uh, in Game Changers. And it led me to create uh, Law 19 in the book. And the title of Law 19 is Waking Up Early Does Not Make You a Good Person. <laughs> and uh, the, the subtext for that is there is no morality in waking up early or staying up late. There's a huge amount of power in finding out when you sleep best and building your life so you can sleep then. And the, the point for that is, is that one of the other laws is, is what you do in the morning really does matter. So the, the miracle morning perspective from Hal Elrod, but that the definition of morning for an early riser is different than the definition of morning for a late riser. And, and that knowing when to sleep seems like an important thing to discover so you can show up all the way. Talk to me about what you've seen either in the lab or in, in other readings, other research uh, around proper wake-up time. And is it the same for everyone? Well, your day actually begins when you go to bed the previous night because that determines... Uh, how long you'll sleep, how long you'll reset your brain, and then how fresh you wake up in the morning. So um, if somebody is going to... So one but rule of thumb is uh, most sleep researchers agree that an adult should be in bed for eight hours. I'm saying should be in bed for eight hours. So out of that, somebody may get six and a half to seven hours of sleep. So that means if someone wants to wake up at 6 a.m., then this person should aim to go to bed at 10 p.m. at night. And then the question is whether people who wake up at 6 a.m. versus 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 10 a.m., are there any difference in performance? I think that's where the wake-up time 
is not as important as how many hours you slept. Um, the person may be going to bed at 3 a.m. and waking up at 6 and maybe getting three hours of sleep. We know that that's not going to board very well uh, for next day's performance. But when people wake up late, then the thing is they're more likely to have a better night's sleep. And uh, because what is happening is in modern days, we have to stay awake late into the night for many different reasons. We have to have our social life or sometimes the kids come back, the parents help them with homework or something else. So in that way, our sleep is getting delayed. And and people who wake up later, maybe they are getting better sleep. One nice study on that, not on older adults, but on high school students, just came out. It's a nice collaboration between uh, Horacio D'Iglesia um, from Seattle and our lab. What happened was a few years ago, there was this hypothesis that teenagers are not getting enough sleep when they wake up in the morning and go to school yeah. very early. Uh, so maybe delaying their school start time will help them. So Seattle School District, which is the largest school district in the U.S., decided to delay the high school start time from 7.30 in the morning to 8.30 in the morning. And uh, that was a big resistance from teachers because teachers and parents, yeah. they are likely to wake up early and teenagers are likely, likely to wake up late. And uh, so that's why Seattle School District was very eager to see whether the school delayed school start time has a better effect on students' performance. And uh, Horacio and his team monitored 200 students from two different schools um, when the school start time was 7.30 a.m. And they monitored them with... Uh, very high grade, this FDA approved medical grades, sleep trackers and activity trackers for 75, up to 75 days for up to almost two months um, before the school start time changed and also track their grades and track their absenteeism or tardiness. And then after the school start time changed to 8.30, uh, he again went back and collected the same set of data from 200 students. And then the results are pretty clean. Um, over the last 100 years, U.S. adults and teenagers have lost one hour of sleep. So that means in every year, we are losing around 0.6 minutes of sleep. Um, and what he found is by delaying school start time by an hour, these students got 34 minutes of sleep. So that means we turned the clock back among Seattle school students. So that now in 2018, these students are sleeping as much as students in 1950 were getting that much sleep. It, I, I, I just, I'm so happy that you're talking about this. I'm always talking about school start times on social media. And here's the thing. It's torture to make any animal wake up way earlier than it's supposed to yeah. five days a week for basically yeah. 12 years. And that's the definition yeah. of school right now. I'm actually looking at moving my kid's school to one with a later start time because the amount of time they will live is based on the sleep yeah. quality they get as kids. Like I'm going to buy them another 10 years of healthy longevity just by getting them out of these like wake up early things. And this is one of the things that also drives people to start homeschooling, things like that is you don't want 
to have your kids getting up at you know six thirty in the morning when they're fourteen years old. It's not natural. Yeah. It's mean. And not only that, we we also saw that when they slept more thirty four minutes, it's not that they did not do their homework. <laughs> Actually, they improved their grade by nearly five percent. Just imagine if someone, if your kid is getting 86, 87 in all the subjects and is getting a B grade, just that extra sleep will bring that grade to A because now he or she is going to get all A's. The average score will be around 90, 91. We also saw reduction in uh, tardiness, so particularly kids uh, when they're getting up too early and then are sleepy and there is not enough time to reach school, a lot of them end up uh, being late. So this is an exciting study that clearly shows that in modern days, it's not ideal to wake up so early. And maybe for some people, at least for high school students who are the foundations of our future, we should let them sleep a little bit more and it's going to improve their overall health, increase maybe longevity in long-term, improve productivity and their score. Well, I am going to take the excerpt of this interview and I'm going to play it for the school board here. And I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to take this. We've got Dr. Sachin Panda, one of the world's preeminent experts from the Salk Institute on Circadian Biology, telling you that sleep is a cognitive enhancing substance you can use for your kids to get better grades, uh, get them to show up to school more. So there's no excuse for starting school early. You'll hear these dumb excuses like, oh, it impacts traffic flow. It's like, hey, this is the next generation here, so go around the school zone or something. It, it doesn't matter. That This is simply not okay. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's one of those things that we're going to figure out multiple generations-wise. Let's see what happens when you have five generations of people who are sleep-deprived as kids, what it does to the IQ of a country. Probably not good things. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll get off my, my soapbox there. So you you yeah. you pointed out one thing, traffic flow. Actually, there are studies showing that when school start time is delayed, then the kids have less accidents. Of course, because they're not. <laughs> I, I remember driving like a zombie to school uh, uh, when I was when I what I can remember from high school because I was so darn tired because I mean wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. But all right, uh, I have another question though. You mentioned most sleep experts agree on eight hours of sleep, but most. Exercise experts now will also tell you that they agree on 10,000 steps as the ultimate number of steps per day. Now, I did some digging on that a while back for the Bulletproof blog. The number of 10,000 steps came from a Japanese company that invented the first pedometer, a mechanical pedometer you put on your belt in the 1950s. So they just made up the number from thin air and told everyone in marketing that 10,000 steps was the ideal. And to this day, we will swear up and down that 10,000 steps is a magic number. It is not a magic number. And when I looked at the data on sleep and found that the people who live the longest from a 1.2 million person study that went for three years, that they only sleep six and a half hours a night. Yeah. I'm like, I don't care if most sleep experts say that you should sleep eight hours a night because it, it's apparent that sleeping more than eight hours a night is actually dangerous compared to sleeping maybe seven and a half hours. So where does eight hours really come from? And do you believe that having seen rat melanopsin sensors in labs and Petri dishes and all that? Like how much BS are we dealing with? Well, the epidemiology is right. Uh, the self-reported six and a half hour of sleep correlates very well with longevity or disease-free life. Uh, when it comes to eight hours, it's not eight hours of sleep. It's eight hours in bed. That's what I 
I always tell people that. So it's what else you're doing in bed that makes you live longer. Okay, that changed the whole equation. (laughs) Yeah, so when I say, I always tell people, aim for eight hours in bed. And we know these days when people go to bed, they're checking emails and doing other things. And then when they wake up, sometimes they wake up and then they're still tired. They check their email and other stuff before they get out of the bed. So that's that's what we say, that target eight hours in bed. Okay. <laughs> eight hours in bed, no matter what you're doing. That that I, I might be able to get away with that. Uh, the, the other obvious thing there is, if you can reduce sleep latency, and this is a measure of how yeah. long it takes you to fall asleep, think about this. My sleep latency is usually under three minutes because there's breathing techniques and other stuff like that, and I've done enough neurofeedback, the voice in my head is generally pretty quiet. So I lay down, close my eyes, say go to sleep, and then poof, I'm out. Uh, and I can do that whether or not I'm super tired or not, so I don't think it's sleep deprivation that does that. But uh, imagine if you took 20 minutes Okay, that extra 17 minutes of your life every day for the rest of your life, this is one of those things that that you must hack that because 17 minutes is enough time to do high intensity interval training that day and still have more time. Like it's it's a really big savings. Do you have anything you've learned from all the work you've done specifically with lighting or or food or anything else about reducing sleep latency so people go to sleep faster when they want to in bed? Well, uh, there are a few things. Means you have already hacked how to (laughs) do your neurofeedback. One thing is what we are finding, people who do time-restricted eating, and particularly if they stop eating two to three hours before bedtime, uh, that helps. Second, Yep. Uh, reducing exposure to blue light for two to three hours before going to bed. Yeah. That also helps. And this is much more important because now, uh, actually, I have a app that we just built up from the lab called My Lux Recorder, one single word. <clears throat> and wherever I go. Oh, can I get it now? Is, is it? Yeah, is it it's, on, it's on, on the iOS. Uh, and it tracks your light exposure all day. I've been wanting this for no, years. No, no, no. It's, it's oh. not. Uh, it, you have to open the app and then record it. But then the point is, wherever I go, I just record it. What is interesting, two to three years ago, when LED lights were not that popular, um, many stores, department stores, uh, grocery stores, uh, drug stores, etc., they used to have 300 to 500 lux of light. And now, after the switch to bright blue LEDs, uh, these stores have easily 1,000 lux or more light. And that is very worrisome because most people go to do their grocery stop, uh, shopping or go to get a drug um, from the drugstore at night. And when they go, they spend at least half an hour in this bright blue light. Yes. So one more thing I got to add is <laughs> if, you're going to, if you're going out of your home and going to a drugstore or a grocery store or any store these days, then make sure that you are less exposed to blue light. Maybe this is where blue filtering glasses will come handy because in many cases, we cannot just stop up going to these stores at night. That's the only time we may have to go shopping. Okay. Uh, So So no food for two to three hours, no bright light for two to three hours. And then um, some people, uh, their core body temperature, body temperature doesn't fall well at nighttime. And to have a good night's sleep, we need to have a good drop in core body temperature. So people can take a shower, and that actually helps to drop the body temperature. They can go to sleep. A, a cool shower. Yeah. Uh, some people like a warm shower. Some like a cold shower. But the bottom line is whatever shower you take, your blood circulation will draw towards your skin away from the core. 
and that helps to cool down your body. Would uh, would drinking a glass of ice water be a good idea before bed? Yeah, if you're not uh, likely to get up and pee, then it's a good idea. Okay, F- fair point. That's that's bad for sleep. <laughs> Peeing is bad for sleep. Got, got that one. And then the last one is uh, your right to darkness because we have lost our right to darkness. There is so much yes. light everywhere. Um, it's really sometimes it's mind-boggling how we have lost our right to darkness. Even in a modern house uh, with the best architecture, without a um, good, um, um, I mean... Blackout shades. Yeah, good um, insulation and good uh, dark-out curtains, uh, it's almost impossible to get darkness. Plus, there are all these indicators and all these lights on your phones, on your uh, appliances, TV, etc. So that keeps us very jazzed up. And in fact, there is a study that, that just came out showing that even one lux of light, which is equivalent to even uh, bright moonlight <laughs> on full moon day, full moon night, uh, having that one lux of light in some bedroom for some people can disrupt their sleep. And so that's why it's very important to have right to darkness. If you cannot have darkness, then maybe um, a pair of um, eye sets or a sleeping mask will help. There are also studies that came out in 1998 that helped to drive some of my sleep hacking experiments that, that have, uh, I think have been widely echoed on the internet now um, around blacking out the room because the study in 1998 looked at red and blue light on the back of the knee. Oh, <laughs> and found that it affected sleep. And they did a really good thing. They had a sham light. They had, you know, it was, it was blinded. It was a properly done study. And they found changes in REM sleep. So people got less deep sleep and more REM sleep from light exposure on the skin. And the talk that I gave at uh, the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, I talked about you know, the effects of blue lights, um, specifically on, on parts of the eye that aren't the melanopsin receptors that control circadian rhythm just on corneal thickness and all, but it also affects the skin by creating free radicals in the local circadian timing of the skin. If you have blue light on the skin while you're sleeping with an eye mask, the skin is still going to say, oh, it must be daytime and uh, and things like that. Uh, so an eye mask, yes. Um, Actually, Deb, maybe I should correct you there because that particular study about the behind the knee has yeah. been proven wrong. Oh, do tell. I have not seen an update on this. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, t- tell me all so about that's, it. That actually came out almost 10 years ago because the, the behind the knee was yeah. 1999 or 2000. Okay. And those guys, the biggest flaw in that uh, study was to keep these people awake. They had the TV on. Oh, come on. Seriously? Yeah. All right. So there is a, I, I'll send you that study. This is okay. from Ken Wright Jr. Uh, ah. That also came out in Science. Beautiful. And they clearly refuted that that study is flawed. Okay. And there are two other studies that came out. And since then, no one has talked about skin we, light receptor. But we have found that there's a skin circadian biology, right? Like local organ systems in the body. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is skin. That is circadian rhythm in skin. But that skin circadian rhythm is not directly sensitive to this dim light or blue it's, light. Okay. Light might have different, yeah. Light might have different effect uh, on skin, uh, but that study has been refuted. <laughs> okay, thank you for telling me that. I did not see the refutation. I did see the original study and was sort of blown away by it. Yeah. What um, what does concern me though is you look at the correlation between fluorescent light exposure on the skin and melanoma, 
and the correlation is higher from fluorescent light on the skin than it is from sunshine on the skin, um, which is not to say that getting sunburned is good for you, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it is to say that there's something going on with skin and light that is concerning to me, and there's, there's you know, photo-aging effects from not just UV, but also from blue that may not be circadian. Yeah. They just may be mitochondrial. Okay. Yeah, we also don't know what happens to violet light and skin. So, for example, yeah. now there are a lot of uh, violet light being used to decontaminate. So just like UV light kills bugs, there's a narrow bandpass in violet light that can also kill bugs. So there are new lighting in hospitals and vivariums and doctor's offices now um, that are violet. Your eyes cannot figure out whether it's violet or not and that are used for disinfection. These are also used in our food supply chain. And it'll be interesting to see whether that violet light, which can kill bugs, can it make our, uh, what are the types of effect it has on our skin? Well, I I like to think our mitochondria are ancient bacteria. They probably are <laughs> affected by that light. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, so that I, I love that we got to go that deep on on things. Um, just for, for you listening to this going, all right, how crazy is this stuff? Look, people come to my house at night and they say, Dave, why is it so dark in here? I'm like, Cause it's nighttime. And yes, there's red <laughs> lights in my house. Like every room, uh, when I stay up late writing uh, game changers and all, it's only red illumination. My monitor is set to red or I'm wearing the true dark glasses uh, that are, that yeah. are red. And I'm not kidding. It is dim and it is red like a submarine. And you know what? My kids go to sleep at eight, eight thirty. They sleep all night long. If they wake up to pee, yeah. the bathroom light's red. They go right back to sleep. They do not have sleep issues. They never have had sleep issues. They sleep in blacked out rooms uh, and they consider it normal. And every LED light in my room is off because when I go to bed, in addition to the blackout curtains, I have a remote control that disconnects the wiring in my room from the, uh, the circuit breaker, which means anything that had an LED light is now turned off for the night in addition to yeah. lower EMF. Uh, and that that's about an $800 remote control thing, depending on how handy you are with a circuit breaker. So yeah. like, like you can do that stuff and your neighbors will think you're a vampire because of the red lighting. It doesn't matter. Your sleep quality is so good. It's just, it's worth it. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, this is a very important issue because right now in many countries, um, the only bulb people can purchase is LED light. Um, and if they're not aware about how much, um, light the need or how dim the need it's going to make this sleep deprivation more profound and widespread so it'll be a epidemic of less sleep because of the LED lights what do you do at home for, for sleep with your lighting well we don't have any light that's more than that produces more than 40 watt of light okay uh, so these are all dim and if we need lighting then when we have spot lighting or work lighting for example table lamps that illuminates the work area, but not your eyes, not your face. Um, and then all of my computers and uh, our smartphones, they already have night shift or night light feature. So they switch to orange color or dim down around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Uh, so that's uh, one has to be very knowledgeable and has to make that extra effort. But it just takes 10 to 15 minutes to change all your night shift and night light feature, at least yeah. on your computer. And it may not affect your sleep, but at, at least it nudges you. Because if you are staring at the computer 
and your computer screen changes, then you know that it's time to go to bed. So it acts as a going to sleep alarm clock. We have waking up alarm clock, but these light changes actually prepares your body and then slowly you'll fall asleep. Uh, that is uh, that is fantastic. And yeah, having a go to sleep alarm clock is uh, is profound and using light as a way to, to do that is really cool because most people listening have probably on some internet ad or something, you've seen the the alarm clocks that wake you up with light. They, uh, they, they slowly turn on and the light comes up and up and up before there's a sound alarm so that when the sound happens, you're already kind of mostly awake because the light signaled to your body, hey, it's about time to wake up. Why not do the reverse when you go to sleep? I, I really like that idea. Yeah, I think uh, slowly... Many of the building control systems will incorporate this idea. And just like your Nest thermostat cools down your home or warms it up before you get home. So similarly, uh, maybe all the lightings in the house will slowly dim down, starting from the kitchen. (laughs) Kitchen should close around 6.30 or 7, so kitchen should become dark. And then slowly the living room, and then you'll be nuts to go towards your bedroom. (laughs) <laughs> I, I love it. And while we're at it, I just got to say, manufacturers of TVs make it relatively annoying to dim the backlight on your TV, but dim it so that it's as dim as it's comfortable during the day. And when we watch something after the sun's gone down, I screw around on the remote until we've got the backlight turned down to zero or one on a scale of 20 so yeah. that we're not staring at a bright super blue light source and the difference is very noticeable you actually get less tired and stressed when you're watching tv anyway yeah and it doesn't affect sleep as much these are things that that are based on hardcore biology of what's happening in the eyes but we're not aware of them and none of this is about what you eat although you and i both are in agreement you know circadian timing of food matters and eating windows but the the light thing is something that i think junk lights as bad as junk food you know would you eat a big bowl of french fries I would hope not. And would you stare at you know bright white LEDs right before bed? I'd hope not because they're kind of equivalent in terms of doing bad things for you. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you know timing makes a healthy food junk. Similarly, timing can make healthy light junk. Yeah. During daytime, we need that blue light, uh, bright light. But at nighttime, that's just junk light. Yeah. And even too much blue light during the day, it's not going to necessarily disrupt your circadian rhythm, but it can yeah. certainly cause eye strain, stress, and maybe macular ge- degeneration, according to some of the stuff that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, any concerns about excessive blue without matching red and infrared during the day? Uh, these days, people don't get enough blue light. That's the biggest concern. Oh, because because what we're not outside. Because they're not outside. Because uh, we have uh, now data from a um, couple of thousand people over few years and then what we're finding is most people get the get their daylight only when they're driving from home to work or mm-hmm. work to home and uh, that may not be enough particularly if you're wearing sunglasses when you're driving oh yeah that's you're not going to get any then but but i mean you're getting some blue light and sunlight but you're also at the same time getting the entire spectrum of light yeah but when you go into an office you're getting narrow spikes of blue light, probably five times more than you'd get outdoors, but you're getting very little red and infrared and, you know, even the, the warmer spectrum. Yeah. Um, any concerns about sort of the mix or like, like fat protein carbs, like, you know, what type of fat protein and carbs and how, what are the ratios? Do you think that that matters for light 
or maybe not for circadian reasons? I think that matters. Uh, I think there are there will be more papers coming out this year or the next showing how other spectrum of light have better benefit for our health and well-being. Okay. And one is uh, there is this idea that having a good ratio of red, green, and blue, which is similar to what we get in daylight, is good for our eyes. So for example, now people have shown, and it's kind of a widespread phenomena that as children are not exposed to daylight too much, and they're mostly exposed to narrow spectrum of light indoor, their eyes don't develop well. So they have myopia, and they need glasses very early on. And the idea is maybe uh, the rod and cone cells are not getting the right proportion of light, red, green, and blue, and that's making the eye to bend slightly differently or the cornea to bend differently. That leads to myopia. So um, the bottom line is if we can get as close to daylight in our indoor lighting, that's much better. And the best way to get to day- daylight is to have large window and bring some daylight in. Yes, but then again... The Salk Institute's in San Diego, and you're right on the water, and it's probably the most beautiful campus anywhere. But but I'm in the Pacific Northwest. I could open the windows, and all I see is gray schmutz. I mean, should I be putting sun lamps in? No, I think uh, even with that uh, gray light, you still have 1,000 to 1,500 lux of light coming through your window inside home. And outside, you are still getting 10,000 lux of daylight. Um, So that's good enough. but if you want right. to crank it up, particularly, you know, when you go five feet away from the window, your light level is dropping. Yeah. And if you want to bring in some daylight, then maybe you can crank it up with some artificial daylight. Uh, that's definitely what I do. Um, I grew up in a desert and it just feels dark up here. So during the winter, I, I feel much better. I've got a really bright halogen light here yeah. that yeah. makes a big difference. Uh, the other thing that, that, I don't know if there are studies yet, but I, I put a red LED light uh, either in uh, somewhere in the ceiling or behind the monitor Yeah. Um, so that I'm just changing the ratio. So I figure if I'm going to get more blue light, I might as well get a little bit of red. And ideally, like I said, we'll, we're going to know the perfect mix for us. But in the meantime, I just know that our ratios are way off with indoor lighting and monitors. So I'll do what I can to to balance out the 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 short wave light like blue and the long wave light like red. And, and it seems to make my brain work better, but I don't have great science on that. You say anything about the idea of changing the mix or that's all coming in the next couple of years? I think there are a couple of studies showing a pre-pulse to, sorry, a red light illumination followed by blue actually improves your brain function. Yeah. Um, you know, that was a sequential illumination. So it'll be interesting to see uh, whether the mixture does better than the sequential illumination. So that was a human study with fMRI and everything. So it was a very solid study. Here's a hack for that that I've been doing for years. I have a a light in my shower that's wired in on a switch that's red. So when I'm showering, I got a red floodlight in the morning and then I go out, I'm going to get my blue light. And you know, maybe I'm a super dork. I, I, I admit I am, but I think that stuff helps and maybe it's just a little bit here and there, but, but I'm happy you you mentioned that study because I don't know about that study. Yeah. I want to ask about uh, more of your work. Uh, I think that informed the circadian code, your book. You talk about a single gene that controls central timing system in the body and that pair of genes that keep eating and sleep in sync. Can you walk me through those genes and what they are? Yeah, so, well, there are at least now 
a dozen genes that uh, yeah. form this circadian uh, rhythms. And one of the, the, actually the name of one of the genes itself is clock. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this gene pairs up with another gene called BMAL. So this clock and BMAL, they uh, turn on other sets of genes, uh, which are also called period, cryptochrome, reverb, and few other genes. And these genes turn on, and it's almost like a, you can think of, uh, it's like a ice maker in your freezer. Uh, when the ice maker starts making ice, yes, for next few hours it will make ice until it reaches a level where it uh, touches the sensor in the ice maker, so the ice making stops. Right. <laughs> so similarly, clock and beam all will drive these genes to some extent, and then they will stop because the these protein levels will build up and will say tell clock and beam all that that's enough uh, let's stop now and then the ice will melt uh, or in this case this protein level will go down so this thing happens in every 24 hours uh, there will be build up of this ice or these proteins um, and then for the next 12 hours they will go down and so that seems to work almost in every cell um, every brain cell, every skin cell, every stomach cell, every cell has the same circadian clock. But what is interesting is to, so then the question is, what is the function of circadian clock? Uh, what is it really doing? Um, so what, what we think is clocks do a few things. One is it anticipates events. So for example, before we wake up, clocks in our brain and body work together to build up a day hormone, in this case cortisol, and warm up your body, make uh, your heart beat slightly faster, breathing becomes faster, so that when you wake up, you're actually full of energy. So that's why having a good circadian clock and good night's sleep makes you more alert and energetic when you wake up because your body can anticipate when you're going to wake up. So similarly, it anticipates when you're going to have breakfast, so as soon as you have your breakfast, your gut microbiome, your gut enzymes, and everything is working in sync to digest that food very well. So one is anticipation, and then the second one is to separate incompatible process so that you don't feel hungry in the middle of the night because feeling hungry and sleeping are not compatible. You cannot eat while you are sleeping. That's a very bad combination. Mm -hmm. So similarly, a body cannot... Um, make fat and break fat at the same time. Our body cannot make cholesterol and break cholesterol at the same time. So having these things to be done at different time actually improves uh, productivity of our body. And um, in my book, in uh, four to five chapters, I go over how the clock in gut works, how the clock in our liver and kidney, they work uh, with the same principle so that we are at peak performance. Do you think that we're going to find more genes? And if we do, are they going to be nuclear genes or mitochondrial genes? Well, this field of circadian rhythm is um, really rapidly growing because we know that these genes are not acting alone. And almost every month we're finding a new gene that collaborates with one of the central clock genes. And in that way, these clock genes work with many different pathways. Uh, for example, the clock genes also interact very closely with um, 
uh, with proteins that sense steroid hormones and our cortisol, our body's natural steroid hormone. So in that way, um, what clock genes do is they damp out the effect of excess steroid at the right time and can amplify the effect of steroid at another time. Uh, so that's one um, interesting aspect of clock gene regulation of steroid function that came out recently. Similarly, there are also new data showing that the clock genes interact with inflammation pathway. And that's very exciting because if you think of inflammation, inflammation is a natural, body's natural response to an infection or maybe from our gut when we get LPS leaking into our bloodstream, then our immune system has to respond to it. But at the same time, if we the inflammation should continue only for a few hours and then that should damp out because having continuous inflammation is bad. So this new interaction between clock genes and inflammation pathway is showing that the clock genes help inflammation to turn off after a few hours. And when we don't have a functional clock, then inflammation continues linearly and over time it can accumulate and lead to chronic inflammation. So ah. similarly, we're seeing that clock genes affect many different pathways. And this, this is how we now connect clock genes to cell division or tumor formation or cancer prevention, uh, clock genes to even neurochemicals or the neurotransmitters, how they signal inside the cells uh, so that we can sensitize the brain cells to neurotransmitters only for a certain time of the day and then switch switch up their sensitivity so that our brain can go back to sleep and sleep better at night. So this is an expanding okay. area where we'll begin to see, we are continuing to see right now, there may be five dozen different genes that directly interact with clock genes or the clock gene products. And this number is going to grow um, All right. in the next few years. So, so people who've read the Bulletproof Diet or Headstrong or, or have listened to the show for a while, they know that inflammation from any cause is something that you've got to get on top of if you want to perform really well now uh, and die a lot later than you otherwise <laughs> would. Like, like, like inflammation and Trump's cholesterol and, and a lot of other things. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so you found a novel pathway here and other researchers uh, working in a similar field have found a novel pathway. These clock genes are affecting how long inflammation stays turned on and this time-restricted eating uh, or intermittent fasting, sort of the, the, the two ideas go in alignment. But you're also saying if you're doing intermittent fasting, you better stop eating before it gets dark, which fantastic, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and light exposure are also going to be variables um, that, that make a difference. But there's a problem, and, and this is one of the sleep hacks that you'll see all over the internet now, and it originated when I wrote uh, my book on fertility called The Better Baby Book. And when women are pregnant, they're much more likely to wake up between three and five in the morning. And a lot of people who aren't pregnant, uh, men and women, uh, have this problem. They wake up and they can't go back to sleep. And their, their mind is racing and things like that. And what is happening in many of these cases is their blood sugar crash. They didn't have enough blood sugar to basically run the glymphatic system and to sleep. So the body said, oh, I know how to make sugar. Let's secrete some cortisol, maybe a little adrenaline because those raise blood sugar. Therefore, now I have enough fuel for the brain. Unfortunately, cortisol and adrenaline wake you up at three to five and you can't go back to sleep. 
So the the hack for that was I found kind of two different groups. Maybe it's a gene. I don't have the genetic testing to tell you what it is, but one group of people, they do some collagen protein, high in glycine, uh, and low in the stimulating amino acids that raise orexin the same way modafinil does. Uh, some of that uh, with some ketogenic things, dare I say brain octane, uh, which raises ketones, they have enough energy that they sleep through the night. And then the other half of people, they take a teaspoon or two of raw honey, and I found a study that showed it raised liver glycogen 22% more than cooked honey or other forms of sugar, and liver glycogen can fuel the brain effectively versus muscle glycogen. So I'm like, try it out. If you're having this problem, a little bit of this before sleep can stop you from waking up because of the blood sugar stabilizing effect of honey, not in hot tea, because then it's cooked honey, but raw honey. Um, any, those are both eating before bed. They're small <laughs> amounts. We're, we're talking, you know, five, 10 grams. Uh, is there some lower limit of food like that that's not going to break my circadian rhythm? Because I, I don't want to break my circadian rhythm, but I want to sleep all night. Like, what do you, what do, you do for that case? Well, we haven't uh, done anything like that because it's a, it's a moving target. It's, uh, people will say, how much is small enough? Um, the reason why that raw honey or whatever you're eating is going to your liver and is getting stored is because the whole system wakes up. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't done any research in that area, but what we have seen is people who do time-restricted eating, they do sleep very well. Maybe they normalize the way their body learns how much glycogen to store. And this this relates to a very interesting um, circadian rhythm study done in plants. And mm -hmm. you may laugh at it, but we learned a lot of uh, insights into circadian rhythm from plants. Uh, if you think about plants, plants have to make food only during daytime when there is sunlight. Mm -hmm. And at night, they don't have access to anything else. The only food source is their stored starch. And they have to break down that starch to go through the night. And they cannot have this exogenous um, food, they cannot just absorb glucose from the soil or anything else. So what happens is the circadian clock in plants, if you're growing plants, say, in 10 hours light, 14 hours darkness, then the plants will learn that they have to go through 14 hours of darkness. So they will store just enough starch that will last exactly 14 mm. hours when they wake wow. up. So now you take the same plant and make the night 10 hours night and 14 hours of light. Even though they're getting more light, they're not going to store too much starch. Again, they will dial down and they'll store exactly the same amount of starch they need to go over the 10 hours night. In fact, when this paper came out, it was from UK, and it was a few years ago when UK was having some problem with their budget. Mm -hmm. So the headline was, a tiny plant knows how to manage its economy, but our <laughs> British <laughs> finance minister doesn't know it. <laughs> uh, that sounds uniquely British, uh, like their press. <laughs> so similarly, when one has a very strong circadian rhythm where we, we go through a very um, regular habit of when we stop eating, then our body will learn how much stored glycogen the body needs. Maybe that's what is happening because we see that people who do time-restricted eating uh, they always report that they sleep better, particularly this waking up at 3, 3 o'clock. I used to wake up at 3 o'clock for an hour or two, and then I thought that that was normal because that was so common. 
But then quickly I realized that what is common is not normal because you need that continuous restorative sleep. Now it feels much better waking up after continuous sleep than waking up in the middle of the night and staying awake for one or two hours. I've uh, I've always been a fan of sleeping all night and that's that's what I typically do. And what I've noticed is that is this is over eight years of the blog and talking with people before that and anti-aging and all. Uh, the people who wake up at three in the morning uh, typically are not the healthiest population. So, yeah. I mean, they're they having cortisol regulation issues. They have a lot of stress or um, there you know, there can be some hormonal thing going on. And and that's why, uh, say, during pregnancy, this can pop up when it wasn't there before because you have hormonal swings, right? And you have increased energy demands on the body. Or you get someone who just started an exercise program and all of a sudden their body like, I, I need more energy than I had before and I don't have it. So yeah. I, I fully agree with you. You shouldn't need to do that. Uh, but if it's affecting your life right now, as you're working yeah. on, on getting your circadian rhythm going, you might look at those as sleep hacks, but if you need to do it every single night, then maybe you should look at the temperature of your lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, well, well, thanks for, for helping me walk through that sleep hack. And I, I love seeing yeah. people say collagen before bed and raw honey before bed. I'm like, great. That, that idea of, of hacking your sleep is, is, is gone everywhere. Kind of like yeah. the put butter in your coffee thing. And I think yeah. these are, these are important things. All right. Let's talk about astronauts. Hmm. Okay. They seem like they're going to have the worst garbage circadian rhythm of any humans on Earth because it's always noisy in spaceships and space stations. The lighting is junk light, pretty much the definition. There is no sunlight, uh, and if there is, it's through heavily shielded lead-filtered windows and things like that. Uh, and they're on weird sleep schedules, and probably gravity affects circadian rhythm too that we haven't figured out yet. Uh, what are we going to do to fix the circadian rhythm of astronauts? Like put on your science fiction hat and give yourself a ten billion dollar budget. What would you do? Well, the first thing is uh, the circadian lighting, and in fact, yeah. the International Space Station got new circadian lighting a uh, couple of years ago. Uh, so the lighting will kind of simulate as close as possible to daylight for ten, twelve hours, and then switch to orange or red light at night. So we'll see whether that helps astronauts. And, you know, they're going through so many different distractions. In every 90 minutes, they're seeing a new sunrise and sunset. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if, you're in, if I was like in International Space Station, and I know that my, num my days are numbered, literally, because right. you cannot stay there for more than six months or nine months, then you are curious. You are, always want to get up and then see uh, what is going on down there, down on the earth. Uh, so that's one problem. Um, but I think long-term space flight is always a big problem. Like, how are we going to sustain uh, that long-term space flight? And this is where maybe time-restricted eating will also help because um, we know that uh, astronauts may get better sleep if they are on time-restricted eating combined with circadian lighting. And um, maybe... We'll also see whether the astronauts can go through slight caloric restriction because yeah. calorie restriction or reducing calories even with time-restricted eating will naturally boost their ketone bodies and that will help to keep their brain sharp because we don't want them to be dumb or we don't want them to be too tired. So finding that 
sweet spot where they can their body can generate enough ketone bodies to keep their brain working and during fasting they can also lower their body core body temperature and in that way they may need less oxygen because oxygen is a big commodity <laughs> in space uh, yeah. station and it all depends on how much oxygen it's very simple math how much oxygen how much water you can carry with you and if you can reduce slow down metabolism because they're not running really 20000 steps coming back to your pedometer right and they're not expected to do uh, heavy weight lifting although that's necessary to maintain their muscle mass and this this will be a this will be a long term study to figure out how to reduce or maintain metabolism with a modest range that will reduce demand on oxygen reduce demand on water reduce demand on how much recycling they have to do at the same time stay at peak performance and i don't see that uh, the lifestyle that we have on earth eat whenever we want and eat too much food or get exposed to junk lighting all of these things will help them so i think that may be the case that may be the exact the ideal situation where we can figure out the optimum circadian code to keep astronauts fully active and fully productive for very long time without compromising their health span lifespan and if we can figure that out just like many technologies that we use started from the international space station maybe the optimal circadian code for astronauts will trickle down literally to the earth <laughs> and we can figure out the best way to live i'm i'm hopeful that it's a two way street we'll, we'll have more effective astronauts yeah. who can go to other planets and do cool stuff but if we don't hack this we have an issue yeah. you mentioned something important about caloric restriction and there are studies now that show eating too many calories of any kind of calories uh, makes you age faster and there are studies that show eating too much animal protein uh, or other other amino acids that are found in animal protein that are also found in vegetable protein things like uh, to some extent glutamine but methionine uh, tryptophan and cysteine that these affect mTOR they they make you age more quickly and and they're not good for you in excess even though they're required in small amounts uh so we we know that eating too much of anything is bad i mean too, eating too much protein is bad eating too many carbs is bad and probably eating too much is certainly of the wrong kinds of fats bad and eating too much fat that's high calories so you're going too many calories that's also bad so i i've written in a couple of my books about longer fasting than time restricted eating or intermittent fasting uh, i've talked about 24 and 48 hour fasts and i regularly do a 24 to a 48 hour fast probably at least once a month uh, sometimes mm -hmm. more often uh, what is your take on longer fasts maybe even going to up to 3 or 4 days where you're just having water i'll do water and black coffee cuz i mean come on um but <laughs> uh, uh during that uh during that time what does that can do to my circadian rhythm is it advisable how does that line up with the circadian code well the circadian rhythm still continues with uh, longer fast um okay. and um it actually goes through a longer rejuvenation maybe okay. um we haven't looked at longer fast in animals because animals don't like this very long fast uh, water only fast for 2 to 3 days and in humans we know there are a lot of studies from other groups showing that longer fast are very good in reversing or managing many chronic disease and um we know that longer fast will activate 
autophagy pathway to much higher level so that will help longer fast man also increase your ketone body production and that also helps so all the indications are yes longer fast if you can do are beneficial for the body and it's not going to disturb the circadian clock because the circadian clock is a internal time keeping mechanism that continues even without calorie and that's how it will anticipate when you should go to bed when you should wake up and in fact people who do longer fast they always report that um, it's not that they cannot go to bed because they are hungry they actually go to bed much better and they stay they have their good night sleep even during longer fast yeah i sleep well during longer fast yeah um, one question for you when you exit a longer fast now we know that you're more insulin sensitive in the morning in fact if you were to do intermittent fasting and and probably time restricted eating if you were to do it ideally you'd probably have a giant breakfast and skip dinner. It's just no one will do that. None, none of my coaching clients ever want to do it. I don't want to do it because dinner is, is a big part of our social life. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's you, you have to be kind of like a, a lone wolf programmer to pull off that lifestyle. <laughs> so you're, you finished a 48 hour fast. Do you, do you finish it with breakfast or finish it with dinner? Well, when you finish a 48 or 72 or multi-day fast, um, breaking the fast is not easy because your body has forgotten food. You don't have that appetite for a big meal. Um, so usually you break it with a small meal. Like, so in that like, way, like a one pound ribeye steak, the way I do it? Or, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so I don't know how you break it, but for me, uh, the first time I break, it's a, usually a small salad okay. or a fruit, something like that. Uh, so I'm not actually, I'm not hungry. Uh, and yeah, yeah when it's, I do, it's surprising. Yeah, you're not yeah, hungry at all. When I do long fast, it's usually four or five days minimum. So by the end of four or five days, you have to force yourself to eat. Mm-hmm. And um, so I usually break the fast in the afternoon because that's that's when I have time to break the fast because as okay. you know, it, it takes, <laughs> even for that small salad, uh, I take, relatively long time to even force that. Um, so I think it will be very personal what time they they are planning to break the fast and whether they are planning to break the fast alone or with uh, somebody else. And Yeah, but then the idea is don't break the fast with a big meal. I, I agree with that, by the way. I was joking about the ribeye. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out. <laughs> right, cool. Well, is there anything else that you would like hundreds of thousands of listeners to know about their circadian biology, about your work? I mean, you, you've, you've done so much, but you know, you've got a big microphone right now. Like, Help people with some, some stuff you know. Well, the thing is, last uh, couple of years, a um, few things that have come out that are very reassuring and essentially telling that uh, timing makes healthy food junk. And the bottom line is this. Uh, last year, there was a study that came out from Joe Takahashi's lab, who is considered a really a leader in the circadian rhythm field because he discovered the gene clock. What he found was we know that caloric restriction is beneficial, but most caloric restriction studies in mice and larger animals are done in a way that the mice are given a chunk of food which is less than what they should be eating 
And this chunk of food is given usually in the afternoon or evening. Yes. <laughs> and mice eat that food within three to four hours every single day. So essentially, all caloric restriction studies done in rodents are mixture of caloric restriction and time restriction because they're going through yeah. almost 20 hours of fast. Well, and also, aren't those nocturnal animals who should be eating at night and yet have weird indoor lighting disturbing things as well? <laughs> well, so that's why the second part of uh, Joe's uh, experiment is exciting. Oh, okay. He took two groups of mice and did caloric restriction of both of them. One group got food in the evening when they're supposed to get, and then the other group got food in the morning. Oh, wow. And both groups got the exact same number of calories from caloric restriction. And if we go by CR, caloric restriction literature, both groups should see the same benefit irrespective of timing. <laughs> but what was exciting was the morning-fed mice did not lose weight, although they were eating less food. And that was really interesting that even if you are doing caloric restriction, if you eat at the wrong time, then you may not see sufficient benefit of calorie restriction. All right, here, here's the deal. If some <laughs> joker tells you that calories in, calories out, losing weight is just a matter of counting calories, you can just quote that. You can cut out this snippet. You can send it to them. Here's the deal. That that science is dead. There's a nail in it. And, yeah. and if, if that's not enough, let's just give a little bit of xenoestrogen to some of the mice and caloric <laughs> restriction and see whether they lose weight. They won't. So yeah. screw calories. Yes, calories matter. You do not lose weight by cutting calories. You have to cut the right calories at the right time and do the other stuff. All right, sorry. Yeah. That, that, thank you for, for bringing that one up. <laughs> also, have you seen the studies on the difference in mouse outcomes based on whether a man feeds the mouse versus a woman? <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's mostly in uh, mouse behavior studies yeah, when yeah. the when the female uh, female students or technicians or grad students uh, they handle the mice. Then the outcome from behavior studies are much better than the males. Somehow the mice don't like uh, males. Uh, there is another one from ketogenic diet and mouse. Um, you know, people think that uh, ketogenic diet will increase lifespan. So there are two studies done that came out last year. And in both studies, mice were given ketogenic diet ad libitum whenever they can eat. Or uh, in another study, in one study, actually, the ketogenic diet was given once a day. So that means they were self-imposing time-restricted eating. And only when ketogenic diet was given once a day and they were eating all this food within 10 to 12 hours, those mice only showed some benefit of ketogenic diet. These mice lived slightly longer and they had better health outcomes. But when the ketogenic diet was given ad libitum, so mice can eat whenever they want, those mice actually uh, had worse health outcome compared to even mice that are eating normal diet, standard diet. Wow. So this is, again, another case where uh, ketogenic diet, which seems to have a lot of benefit, has to be combined with time restriction. Yeah, you, you've got to do it right. And, and also, mouse studies, when they feed them things, they saw this ridiculous idea that fat is fat and protein is protein. And they say, look, we fed them fat. And look, if you feed a mouse corn oil 
it's going to be different than if you feed them butter. Like, like they, they do different things in the liver. They do different things in the body. And a lot of the, the mouse feeding studies, they boil it down. It's like saying, we gave them this amount of liquid. Well, if they were drinking kerosene, you're going to have a different <laughs> outcome than if it was water. But since it was all liquid, we just boiled it down to liquid. So I, I'm, I'm a little frustrated in some of these studies because we know that, that feeding casein, which is you know, a, a cancer-promoting uh, in excess for sure, especially with aflatoxin that's common in rat chow, um, <laughs> you know, if, if you do that, you're just going to screw up the study. Uh, I mean, how much faith do you put in, in mouse and rat studies uh, for circadian biology? I, well, I mean, in, is, in vivo, uh, not in vitro. I, I mean, you, you yeah, so the in vivo cells. studies um, are pretty, if we think about, say, mouse and rat study versus human studies, means human studies are <laughs> worse because yeah. we don't have control over genetics, uh, genotypes, and then we cannot keep people inside <laughs> indoor and then feed them at the right time. Oh, I thought that's what uh, school so every, was for. Yeah, so every study has its own <laughs> strengths and limitations. The nice thing about the mouse and rat study, whatever we do, is we can be completely transparent about which particular diet source we used. Yeah. We can even put the catalog number so we know that this mice ate that particular diet from this supplier, and then the supplier has all the ingredients, whether it mm. was artificial, natural, and what is the source. So in that way, we know um, in very detail what kind of food this mice ate every single yeah. day. So just like you said, in retrospect, for example, if we figure out that this particular food component can cause cancer or can cause some adverse side effect, we can always go back to the study and then check whether that was causing some problem. So that's the nice thing about the laboratory study is everything is transparent and everything we know what happened to the mice and at what is the experiment was done, even from which source the mouse came. So for example, now with the gut microbiome, we know that if one supplier, if we get mice from one supplier versus the other supplier, these mice were born in different uh, case, so they might have different gut microbiome, that can affect our outcome. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, uh, in fact, that has been shown now <laughs> that one vendor, uh, when mice were procured from one vendor, then they uh, fared very badly with the diet, whereas the other vendor, uh, mice, uh, fared very well. And then people went back and nailed it to the microbiome in the original case from where the mice were born. So those are the kind of stuff we cannot do in human because mm -hmm. we cannot keep track about the uh, life history. Uh, so I agree that uh, a lot of the mouse experiments may not translate to human, but at least we have more transparency and more knowledge, more information about the mice, their genotype, their microbiome, their diet, the light-dark cycle, for example, all mice in all vivariums go through 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. Mm -hmm. That's standard. And we don't even have that for any human studies because every human is very different. They will have different sleep pattern, different light right. exposure. So that's the beauty of mouse experiment. And that's also the weakness because we can always go back and say, well, you did this wrong, <laughs> or you did it only in young mice and you cannot translate to older mice. And many of the mouse experiments in metabolism are done only on male mice, not on female mice. Uh, but at least we know that those are done only on male mice. Got it. So, so the, I think there's great data and knowledge in them, but if you take one study, like I'm pretty sure they didn't account for the cycle of the moon and all these other things that no one <laughs> thought might matter, but it might, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
beautiful. Uh, Sachin Panda, uh, uh, your work is truly groundbreaking on uh, circadian biology. I, I will never forget standing there in your lab and looking at you know retinal cells from a mouse <laughs> on a high-powered microscope and like, hey, do you see those melanopsin cells studded with mitochondria? That, that really helped to shape some of my thinking for Headstrong. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful you, uh, you took me on that tour of your lab and grateful that you've come on the show and that you wrote the circadian... Uh, the skating code and and really have just pointed out this idea that it's not just you know intermittent fasting for keto bros uh, but that it's when you're doing it you know that it's time restricted eating and that you've talked about it in the context of of your mom <laughs> yeah. she if she got healthier she's not doing kettlebells she's not no. doing anything crazy uh, yeah. but her type 2 diabetes went away because yeah. she followed stuff in the circadian code and and so I, I think you're changing a lot of lives with your work and i'm i'm glad you're doing it Thank you so much, Dev. I'm always happy to be on your show. <laughs> I've got a final question for you. Yeah. Because uh, I've been really public. I was just in men's health uh, where I'm doing everything in my power to live to at least 180. And, you know, I figure I've seen people do 120, so I know it's possible. And I figure I have a pretty unfair advantage uh, because, well, I can start now and I have a lot of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so maybe I can do that. And I'm guessing that over the next... Oh, 75 or so years, we're going to have a few advances in human life extension based on the technology, stuff you're working on, stuff that many friends are working on. I, I get to see behind the scenes on the anti-aging movement. Uh, so I'm, I'm counting on some tech to help me there. So that's my number. What's yours? Oh. How long are you going to live? Oh, how long I'm going to live? Actually, I don't want to live too long because, you know, I'll lose many of my friends and... <laughs> So even if you're even if you felt like you do now, yeah. you, know, you have your energy, your your body, your mind. You know you're you're not in a walker. You you know your name. You don't put your your, your keys in the refrigerator. All those all those things. Still not too long. <laughs> yeah, I I really don't want to put a number there because uh, one thing is we still know that our genetics play a big role in longevity, and that's something that uh, we don't know in my lifetime. I don't think we can chains by CRISPR or any other technology, um, hundreds of thousands of genes to change my lifespan. So there is uh, one thing that I stay away mm -hmm. from is to predict how long I'm going to live. But one thing <laughs> that's sure is... I, I respect that. I respect that answer. That, that's okay. But what's the one thing? One thing that I'm sure is I will be active in science for next... 6,956 days. <laughs> Why that number? No, that's the day when I'm planning to retire from my current oh. job. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on my whiteboard go. right here. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Bonus so, question then. After I well, do that, then yeah. I'll decide in my next thing that I do after quitting science or quitting my current professor job, how happy I am and how long I want to live. <laughs> That is an epic answer, and uh, it makes so much sense. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your work. If you like Sachin Panda's uh, knowledge, you got to read The Circadian Code. And also, you should get My Circadian Clock. And uh, Sachin, what's the name of the other app you mentioned, the Lux app? Oh, My Lux Recorder. My Lux Recorder. So if you're a biohacker out there, <laughs> uh, I'm actually downloading that right now. Uh, it's called My Lux Recorder. So the only only glitch is it doesn't work with uh, iPhone 6 or 6s with uh, iOS 12. Somehow we got to hack that. 
But then the nice thing is wherever I go, almost in every airport, every grocery store, I have been recording light. And it just gives you a perspective about how much light uh, we have around us in the evening. You know, I, I have a $10,000 light sensor um, yeah. that's part of the True Dark uh, company's research and all. But it's too it, it's too much of a pain to walk around with it and all, so I never do, and, and it's it's at their headquarters yeah. and all. So having it on my phone, you just made my day. Uh, Sachin, thanks again, man. Thank you. A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.